As you turn in your Bibles to the last chapter of First John, uh, let me repeat an announcement. I trust it has been made and already made clear enough, but because of the uniqueness of the event this coming Sunday evening, I really, really want to urge us. Uh, I, I want to see that this coming Sunday evening, it won't be the usual half of this auditorium field, but that there will be only standing space remaining. And I know we can do it because we all know non-Christian friends and relatives, and even those who are Christians who are in marriages that are really struggling, simply because the basic premise of love and submission is not in place. And it would be very selfish of us to overlook the fact that here is an opportunity for them to, to come and hear teaching on this matter, which can help them, and not only help them, but provide a more stable home in which they can raise their kids. Surely, the least we can do this week, in the next seven days, is to do everything possible to not just invite, but also to confirm with those friends so that they might be here with us. Um, so let's do a bit. Our preacher is arriving this week and will immediately make his way to Ndola, where he'll be preaching towards the end of this week. And then next week he's preaching in Kitwe. But he has decided at our invitation to come into Lusaka and then go back just for this. So if he is willing to do that, we must be willing to play our part. So let's go to, what does the Bible say? The highway and the byway and compel them to come in. I think you all know that text. So that my house must be crowded so that the feast is full. And uh, we intend to use social media as well. So when you see something on social media about this, please don't just like, do a little more than liking, share, okay? The difference between liking and sharing is fairly easy for you to imagine. It's somebody gives you a cake and you cut and you go, hmm, I like it. <laughs> and then you end there. Come on, share. If it's nice, share. That's what we should do. Let's share this week. Let's paint social media red with the invitations to this place. Okay, I could go on, but let's quickly come to our Bible reading here. The sermon, I'll try and make it brief. I don't know how we'll do it, but let's try. Okay, we're coming to the end of First John, and we'll simply read uh, verse 13 
and then verse 20 downwards. Verse 13 and verse 20 downwards. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then our text for today, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Well, as you can see, our journey through First John has finally come to an end. Um, it's our 68th sermon. I wished that I could squeeze in two more, but the Lord uh, didn't think so. So we end on uh, 68 messages on First John. And the very reason why we have read verse 13 is because it's John's own statement as to why he has written the various things that he has written. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, it's a book that is written primarily in order for us to know assurance of salvation. Or better still, to know that what we are thinking is salvation truly is salvation. It is possible to think you are saved when you are not and it is also possible to think you are not saved when in actual fact you are. So John has spent his time across these five chapters giving us something of the content of assurance of salvation. And we've seen that it is the right belief concerning the gospel and it is also the right life that is arising out of that same gospel. And last week, we ended our uh, service by looking at the 20th verse in which the Apostle Paul is giving us the third or fourth aspect of knowledge that is in this bundle of assurance of salvation. We saw that there was answered prayer. We also saw, especially with respect to prayer for those who are in sin, we saw that there is the knowledge of the fact that God will look after us because we are his people. And we've also seen that he gives us a very real knowledge of himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what we saw last week, that Jesus Christ, in coming into this world, has given us understanding, spiritual understanding. And that is because of the mystical union that we have with him. Um, we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. And then he ends by telling us that the, that knowledge that we have of him 
is primarily that he is the true God himself and eternal life. He is the true God and eternal life. It's very clear there that the reference to he is the true God is not so much about God the Father, who is the true God, no doubt about it, but it is about God the Son himself. And if there is any passage in the Bible that again augments the divinity of the Son, here it is. He's given us the knowledge of himself, of his Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And as I said to you, he's simply tying the end of his letter to the beginning of his letter. Because in the beginning of his letter, he had told us again and again about him whom they could see, they could touch, they could relate to, and he was referred to as the eternal life, which is again Jesus Christ. Now, strictly speaking, the, the letter came to an end in verse 20. So one begins to wonder why John added what we now call verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Clearly, it is part of this letter because that little phrase, little children, is one that John uses quite a number of times in this same epistle. So it's not some one letter on who simply added it in. It's clearly on John's mind. So how do we piece this little thing into this entire letter? Well, clearly, the fact that John has just said in the previous verse that this Jesus is the true God and eternal life enables us to see that for us to worship anyone else, it would be idolatry. It would be idolatry. And hence, clearly, he is now giving us the opposite of that statement. Keep yourselves from idols because you have come to know the living God, the true God. Don't allow yourselves to go the wrong way. Well, let's spend a bit of time then this morning concentrating on this final warning of John as he closes this epistle. Clearly, his message is about idolatry. And the message is quite clear. Christians, beware of idolatry. Those of you who profess to be believers, beware of this danger that you can easily fall into idolatry. Now, brethren, idolatry is an ever-present reality for all human beings. And the reason is quite simple. God has created us in such a way that we are worshippers by nature. There is a space in our hearts that longs for something great to be devoted to that other 
upon which all our hopes are based. And so John ends this book with an appeal that we must keep ourselves away from wrong worship, which is what idolatry ultimately is. So let's think for a moment. What is an idol? Now to begin with, the most obvious meaning of idolatry is that it is those gods that people set up in order to bow to them and worship them. And so you find in the various Gentile nations of the world, when missionaries got there, Christian missionaries, they did not find them without a religion. They found them with some form of religion. There was some kind of worship that was taking place even there. And that is the first form of idolatry. We see it, for instance, in Daniel chapter 5. I think that would be our Bible reading this evening, but no harm in at least reading two verses from there. And then we also see it in Romans and chapter 1. So Daniel chapter 5, this is uh, after Nebuchadnezzar, and now Belshazzar is the one who has taken over as king and he's having a, a, a powerful party in his palace and in due season he asks for the utensils or the vessels from the temple that his dad um, Nebuchadnezzar had brought to Babylon and then he begins to use those same utensils. But look at what we read in verse 4. We are told they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. We also see as Daniel responds in verse 23, the second part of verse 23, it's a very long verse, but the second part of verse 23, Daniel says this, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And then listen to this. Which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your words you have not honored. So it's very clear there what idolatry is. It is taking that which is due to the only true God, the creator of the entire universe, the governor of history, the one who holds each one of us up, and you then give that worship to something else that is made of wood, of stone, of iron, whatever other property they might be made of. That's the kind of idolatry that obviously we would all be familiar with. We find exactly the same in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And uh, I will commence from verse 22. 
Romans 1 and verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Again, the point there is quite simple. It is the fact that here are human beings who ought to be worshipping this God who has revealed himself in all of creation, but instead claiming to be wise. They then take all that and pass it on to images which they themselves have made. Some, some clever craftsman has, has, has put together this image and consequently they are all bowing down to it saying you are our god well that's the most obvious form of idolatry but you see strictly speaking in a general term an idol is anything that occupies the place of devotion that the true God should occupy. Let me say it again. An idol is anything that occupies the place of devotion which only the true God should occupy. Once you are guilty of that, you are guilty of idolatry. And hence, in the Bible, you find that this principle is opened up a little more. And consequently, the Bible, for instance, refers to covetousness as idolatry. Please turn with me quickly to Colossians and chapter 3. And in a moment, you will understand why covetousness should be referred to as idolatry. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. I'll throw in verse 6 as well. If you are there, I commence reading. Colossians 3 and verse 5. <clears throat> Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires and covetousness which is idolatry on account of these the wrath of god is coming the apostle john uh, paul there rather makes the appeal to the colossian believers to make sure that they deal with these things that he refers to that are earthly in you that belong to your fallen nature. Deal with them. Kill them. And one of them is idolatry. It is identity, rather, it is covetousness. It is identified as idolatry. Now, you ask yourself, uh, how can that be? Well, the reason is quite simple. 
covetousness, this, this strong desire for something that is not legitimate is a devotion that is taking the place of God. That's what it is. And consequently, although God says, no, you cannot desire this because it is not yours, you have no right towards it, you are turning your priorities upside down, what do you say? You say, God, sorry, get out of the way. I must still get this. And consequently, you break different laws of God in order for you to still get what you want. So for instance, James chapter 4 puts it this way. James 4. Look at what covetousness does. James 4, verse 1 to verse 5. You will see why it is idolatry. It is competing with God in terms of the position that you ought to have in your life. James chapter 4, and I begin reading from verse 1. <clears throat> what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, he's basically talking about people who are breaking the sixth, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. And so they are quarreling, they are fighting, they are harming one another, and he's asking, why is that happening? Well, listen to this. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, you are harming other individuals because of this strong desire within you. I must have this, and this person is standing in my way in order to get this. Therefore, out he goes. So that you still lay your hands on what it is that you want. And even God ends up being a servant of yours to that end. Look at this. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. And then he goes further. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, even God now is not the one about whom you are praying that his kingdom may come, that his will may be done on earth as it is being done in heaven. No, no, no. You're not interested in that, man. What are you interested in when you go into the prayer meeting? It is, you know, this thing that I've been desiring, another thing that I've been desiring, and the other. Come on, join me in praying that, that God may, may give me those things that I want. It's idolatry. Right in the church building. Right in the church prayer meeting, it's idolatry taking place even there. And then he says, you adulterous people. And he's not talking about physical adultery there. 
He's talking about idolatry as adultery. Because your devotion ought to be towards God and God alone. The way in which a wife is committed to her husband and a husband committed to the wife only, only. But an adulterous person ends up with somebody else by the side as well. And that's what you are doing when you are guilty of adultery, rather uh, idolatry. Your heart is devoted to more than God. God is there, yes. But it's more than God. In fact, often that other becomes more important than God. And so, when God says in the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, you are saying sorry. Yes, you are there. But I also have other passions, other desires, others that I am devoted to. And hence, you break the Ten Commandments right from the top going all the way down. In fact, covetousness, in terms of the Ten Commandments, is queried in the very last one. When it says, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's cows or animals, etc., etc., list them all there. Because when you do that, the problem is you break all these other commandments going up. You kill the guy so that you can get what he has. You, you, you commit adultery with his wife or her husband. You steal the property that you've seen. Yes, you've seen it. You can't have it. You steal it. Well, we, we've already gone through three of the five commandments on, on the second tablet. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Well, let's throw in the, the fourth one. You lie. Why are you telling lies? It's because it's the only way you can get that which you are devoted to, which you know you've got no right to. So you tell lies. Which one is remaining now on the second tablet? It's this one. We shall not cover it. You've broken all of them. It's the mother of all those other breaches of the commandments of God. Why? Because you are devoted to something else rather than the God of heaven. That's what it really is. And friends, let's face it. Idolatry is part of human life and living. Look at money as a typical example. Money is an idol for many people. People live for money. It's supposed to be a tool. Just a tool. But no. They kill for money. They, they sleep around for money. 
They steal for money. They lie for money. It's an idol. In the generation in which we are. And never sit there just saying to yourself, well, of course, it's, it's, it's nothing to me. Check your heart. Check your life. Whether you are not living for money. Individuals who are believers, Christians, will get a job in a place where they haven't even inquired whether there's a church there, some foreign country, because there's a lot of money there, a lot of money. Ten years later, their children are lost, lost. They are transgenders, whatever genders. They were not thinking about the souls of their children, about the issues of the worship of the living God. It is money, 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 money. It's an idol. So when John is saying here, beware of idolatry, he's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to those who profess the name of God. He's saying, watch out. It's a very, very real danger. Money can become your number one devotion in life. Shall I throw in football? <laughs> Thank you very much. I've said a few yeses from wives. <laughs> it's also an idol. People are devoted to football to the point where they fight. Can you imagine? It's just a game they're watching. But someone makes a comment against the guy who's playing. Take that. <laughs> they are just playing. And if I was to pass a piece of paper here to wives and say, does your husband love football more than you? <laughs> I know. I would have a lot of yeses. Another small print, but don't show him this paper. <laughs> because he knows my handwriting. <laughs> you know. They get money which ought to go to important family issues and pull them into that same uh, area of idolatry. In other words, all those other lies and other sins I'm talking about, including telling lies, it's all there. So when John is saying here, beware of idolatry, he's not talking about be careful that you don't end up bowing to a mountain or to a tree. They're not likely to do that. But the truth is, Idolatry is an ever-present danger because of the way God has made us. He's made us worshippers. He's made us individuals who are devoted to something. And it's very possible to be devoted to something other than God while you still go to church. 
Now, the truth is that when a person becomes a Christian, one of the things he gets saved from is from idolatry, from idol worship. Because every human being is devoted to something. But at the point of your repenting from sin and putting your trust in Christ, you go from being a worshiper of whatever idols it might be to now serving and worshiping the true and living God. Quickly turn with me to First Thessalonians and chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1. I begin reading from verse 8. First Thessalonians chapter 1. I begin reading from verse 8. While you're getting there, my mind has just gone back to football because of the World Cup. You see what will happen to your commitments to whether it's evangelism or Bible studies or church services when there will be a clash in timetable. You see how individuals are going to make sure that ah, it's just a prayer meeting, you know. You know it's the cup final, cup final. And ask yourself, is that what you do when it's now the August conference coming. You'll find no. In fact, you've made more provisions for football than you do for an actual Christian conference. And you still say, it's not an idol. Give me a break. It is. But let's go on. First Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 8. For not only that, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. In other words, your reputation has gone abroad. And what is that reputation concerning your salvation? Verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us, the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He says, that's the word that's doing its rounds. That here are a people in Thessalonica, when Paul came to preach, they turned from all the idols. They've turned to God. They are now devoted to God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when John says, keep yourselves from idols, He's assuming that the beginning has already happened. You've already been rescued from idolatry. So he's basically saying, don't go back into it. Because as a Christian, as a true Christian, 
That's what happens on the day of your salvation. Your heart is taken away from devotion to that which is false and you are now devoted to that which is good. And it is a fruit of the Holy Spirit's regenerating work. He opens your eyes so that for the first time you see in God that which is beautiful and wonderful and excellent, that which is worth living for, and consequently you abandon everything else and make him your all in all. That's what the Spirit does. And if you remember, when Jesus was on earth, he taught a number of parables, and a number of them had to do with coming to salvation. And he said the kingdom of heaven is like a person who stumbles across a pearl of great price. And what does he do? He goes back home and sells everything that he has, everything, in order for him to purchase this pearl. Oh, here's another example of a, of a person who um, gets a piece of land and discovers that it is a place where, where a, there is a lot of treasure. And consequently, he does exactly the same thing. He goes and sells everything he has in order to buy this land. Well, he's simply illustrating what true Christianity is. That you don't come into the, the, the Christian faith with everything else being carried along with you. No, 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 no. You, you find the altogether lovely one. He, he, he steals your heart away. And consequently, you, you give up all your earthly ambitions. You give up all your other devotions in order to make him your all in all. To borrow the words of John Piper, he becomes the blazing center of your life. The blazing center. There's so much warmth and light there that you care nothing about everything else. He is your all in all. He becomes the center of your love. He becomes the center of your study. To borrow the words of the Apostle Paul, oh, that I may know him. That becomes your cry to know more and more and more of the living God. Indeed, you, you want to obey him. That's, that's all that matters to you now. His word becomes your command. That's all you want, to live a life that is, is satisfying to him. Indeed, you, you want to serve him for, for the rest of your life. You want to, to, to give to him not just your money and your time, but yourself as well. You want to be his servant for the rest of your life. And of course, you want to worship him. You want to worship him. Uh, going to church is not simply going through some activity like going to the gym. Now, now I'm going to the church. No, no, no. You, you want to, to, to give to him that which is his due. And consequently, when it's the Lord's day, oh, it's the market day for the soul. 
You, you, you long to, as it were, stoke up because of who he is to you. Friends, that's Christianity. That's biblical Christianity. There is no other true Christianity but that. That's the reason why when Jesus was asked the two greatest commandments, he said this. Here's the first one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. That was the first one. He didn't say you shall love the Lord your God with some of your heart, some of your soul, some of your... No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's not Christianity. It's everything. It is a devotion to the living God as he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Hence, our text follows that phrase. He is the true God and eternal life. We found him. We found him. Or better still, he has found us. He's revealed himself to us. What a glorious life it is. And hence, from that point onwards, your entire life, everything in your life is around Jesus Christ. It is about Jesus Christ. It is in Christ. Whether it's decisions about myself, how I spend my time, how I spend my money, it, it's, it's about Jesus Christ. Whether it's about my family, decisions I have to make, it's, Lord, what would you have me to do with respect to my family? It's around him. Christ, Christ, Christ. Whether it's my career, I'm not thinking, well, what should I do to make money? Big money. What money? Uh -uh. It's Lord, how would you want me to serve you? What gifts have you given me in this world that through that you may be glorified in my life? Have you seen? It's a complete reversal. Of a world of idolatry. It is now a world of real worship. The worship of the living God. And even recreation. Including football. Again, I think in terms of Christ. Christ, Christ. And if Christ has to be thrown out of the window, well, sorry, it's football that goes out first. He must remain my all in all. That's Christianity. That's Christianity. The Christianity of the Bible. And I want to say, there is not another Christianity. This is not about, well, well, that's, that's sort of a, um, a business class Christianity. As we are economy class. section. No. There is no other. He is either everything or he is nothing. And friends, this is what confuses the world because they try to say, what is it that drives 
the church's evangelism and missions endeavors? What drives them? After all, they don't get money out of it. Often they place themselves in, in difficult places, dangerous places. In fact, some of them end up getting killed. They are putting in money, putting in money, putting in money. They're not getting anything out of it. What moves these people? Well, I'll tell you what moves them. They have found the pale of great price and they want the whole world to know about it. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? That's what moves Christians to, to, to be on fire for Jesus, so to speak. It's because they believe they have found him who is the altogether lovely one, the summum bonum, the highest good. And that's why we call our message the gospel, the good news. Not a gospel, some kind of good news. No, the only good news in the universe. We want to share it. Because in knowing him, we have found peace that surpasses all understanding. We have found love, everlasting love, infinite love. We found joy, a joy that cannot be disturbed by the trials and troubles of this life. We found a family, not simply the, the physical family, but also a family that we will be with beyond the grave in heaven itself. We have been given that family even here on earth. In knowing him, we have ballast in our souls so that those trials that come in life and they will come, we find a capacity within us that is not of our own to deal with those trials. We have found direction in life so that we have a sense of bearing with respect to our sexuality, a sense of bearing with respect to family, a sense of bearing with respect to work. Somehow life has taken shape because of knowing the God who is at the center of the universe. Doesn't that make sense? It does. You look at our solar system, stand on any other planet, and it's all confusing. This planet is going this way, the other one is going that way. Some moon is coming this way, the other moon is going that way. The whole thing looks confusing until you stand on the sun, the center of the, the solar system. Then suddenly, all the planets seem to be in order and are moving so beautifully together. That's what it has happened to us in finding God. In finding God. And more than that, when that day comes, as we've seen a few moments ago, when our strength is gone and our time has come and we are on that deathbed, there will be a light there that will whisk us into his presence that an idolater does not know. The richest man on the planet 
on his deathbed, that money would just be laughing at him, saying, this is what you lived for. Now you are leaving all of it behind, all of it. It would be laughing and mocking at him because he cannot take it with himself into the grave. That's the emptiness of idolatry. And if it's that bad for money, it's worse for football. When you are dying, it doesn't matter whether it's the World Cup or Kosafa or whatever, far. When you are now on that bed, no Messi or Ronaldo can give you peace. You need Jesus. You need him. And that's the idiocy of idolatry. God used to challenge the people of Israel. He would say, these things you are bowing down to, they can't stand. Big, they've got no hands, no feet, they can't do anything for you. And here I am, the living God who has made you, I've carried you through all these years. I feed you, I clothe you, I do all this. You abandon me for a piece of what? Well, sadly, that's the, the reality of the day in which we live. John is saying here, beware of idolatry. Beware of idolatry. Because it still is an ever-present danger. It is. To fall from the heights of this glorious station in life where you now have found the true and living God. He who is the true God and eternal life. You find him. And instead of being wholly devoted to him, it's possible to come tumbling right down into the depths of idolatry. That's why he's saying here, Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. And notice the way he begins his appeal. Little children. It's not so much that they are Sunday school kids. No, no, no. It's, it's his affections pouring out to them. As an aging servant of the Lord. He was, he was the last of the apostles to die. And, and he, he, he still senses this, the depth of affection for, for believers and, and hence the phrase little children. Little children. With all my love for you. Understand this. You have a treasure in God. You're all in all. Beware of lies and error and heresy 
that will come and take you away from that which is true. Beware. Christians can easily be like that dog that we've heard about that had a juicy bone in its mouth and upon crossing a stream looked down and saw what it thought was another dog with a better bone. And so it threw away its bone to grab that one and lost. We are often like that. We listen to the crackling of the noise in the bars in the neighborhood. And we're thinking, that's fine. That's fine. Until we visit that place and realize just how many afflictions those guys have. They can't even stay home. They can't because of problems, self-inflicted problems. I often feel like going to some of these guys who own bars around here and say to them, guy, I've been around here for 30 years. You've also been around for 30 years. Can we exchange notes? Let's see where your people are, who you were with 30 years ago. I'll show you where mine are. And most likely, they've all gone under, carried their spouses under, left their children in an entire mess. And guess what? Their places are full today. <laughs> Again, Christians easily envy that. Someone boasting that he's got six girlfriends all over Zambia. It's like envying that. He's saying here, my little children, put your heads on. Screw your heads into your shoulders tightly. Keep yourselves from idols. In other words, you've been rescued. The pool is there. Keep yourselves. Don't allow yourselves to be dragged into that. Don't. And when he says keep yourselves, he's obviously placing the responsibility on yourself. Yes, you've got elders. Yes, you've got friends. But ultimately, the responsibility is yours to keep yourself away from from idols. In other words, don't compare yourself to others. Don't just envy other people. No. Make sure that your own heart, your heart is devoted to God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that that devotion is for life. With respect to the people that John was writing to, the greatest source of danger for this to happen were the false teachers. 
referred to later as the Gnostics, who were teaching the exact opposite of what John was teaching here. And it's about them that is really worried because the people were consequently being taken away from the true Christ of the Bible. But it's the same today, friends. False teachers will fill your life with idolatry. They will. And false teachers in the church, God, they will give you other rabbits to start chasing after. In the name of Christianity. So that it's no longer Christ. Christ. Christ that you are living for. Christ is now simply a means to something else. And usually today, it is health and wealth. And so many individuals are now in the church, but simply chasing those things instead of Christ. And consequently, they are guilty of idolatry in the church. Idolatry. But may I add to the danger of false teachers, the danger of bad company. Bad company. Friends, health is not contagious. Disease is. You can be properly saved, real affections for the Lord, join a church, and then for, ch for friends, you choose the most worldly friends. I want to assure you, it's a matter of time. Their worldliness will become yours. They are the very ones who will be telling you as you're talking about your devotion, Come on. That's for young converts. Come on. Let us this and let us that and let us this. And before you know it, your life is clustered with the things of earth. So that the appeal that John gives in, in chapter 2, love not the world, you say it's too late. It's too late. Your life has already been taken. You are already in idolatry. So those two things, false teachers and bad company will end up causing you to fall back where the Lord got you from. To fall back into a life of idolatry. And so John is making this appeal. And with that, I quickly rush on to close. Beware of idolatry. It's possible for any one of us to go back to where the Lord saved us. It's very possible. And bear in mind, you see, when God punished Israel and later Judah and sent them into exile, it was idolatry primarily that angered him. When Jesus warned the churches in the book of Ephesians, the church of Ephesus, if you remember, 
He warned them that I might come and snuff out the lampstand. In other words, close down the whole place. And this is the case he had against them. You have lost your first love. That's what he put before them. You still have everything all right. Doctrinally, you cannot be faulted. But your devotion is now divided. You've lost your first love. And friends, we need to be warned about this. Because I want to repeat, it's an ever-present danger. So let me ask again, is your blazing center God as revealed in Christ Jesus? Is he the one who is there? Or is it sex? Or money or football. What's what has captured you, enthralled you? What is it that drives you? What is it? And if you cannot say it's God and it's God alone, my dear friend, you are already in idolatry and you better repent of it. You better do so. And it may explain your spiritual dryness and why church and worship and prayer and Bible study and so on are no longer what they once were. It may explain it. We were singing a few minutes ago the song by William Cowper. Where is the blessedness that once I knew when first I met the Lord? Where is the soul refreshing view of Jesus and his word? Where is it? Oh, the peaceful hours I once enjoyed. How sweet their memory still. But they have left an aching void this world can never feel. Believe me, this world can never feel that place. God alone can. Hence his cry. The dearest idol I have known. Whatever that idol be. Help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. That's the way it must be with each one of us. And I really want to make that appeal here. If you are in that place where the, the, the place which is supposed to be occupied by God alone is now clustered with so many things, it's high time today you repented. And went back to him, telling him to take your life, that it might be consecrated to him. To take your moments and your days and fill them with his ceaseless praise. To say to him that he should take your love. Because you are pouring it at his feet. To say to him, take myself and I will forever be, ever, only, all for thee.
Friends, that's Christianity. That's Christianity. Oh, that John's final appeal would be effective in our hearts, each one. Amen.